Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Thursday the 18th of March. Today, Gordon Brown's admitted a mistake over defence spending in his evidence to the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. I do accept, I do accept that in one or two years, defence expenditure did not rise in real terms. Normally, he gives the wrong impression, but technically he's right. This time, he gave the wrong impression and he was technically wrong. Also today, no flash, just Gordon. Labour's election strategy revealed a cup of tea with the Prime Minister in your front room. They said they suspected it might be Ed Balls or, or somebody like that. And then they were literally, he walked through the door and they were gobsmacked. You know, he, he sat down, introduced himself and off they went. Also today, the head of the Irish Catholic Church says sorry for failing to tell the police about a paedophile priest who was allowed to continue abusing children. For 35 years, he kept this meeting, these two meetings in fact, secrets, not only from all of Catholic Ireland, but also from his fellow bishops. Europe's colonisation of the new world is the theme of this year's Edinburgh Festival. We hear from the festival's director. North, South, Central America, Australia, New Zealand, and the oceans that divide those places. China's most famous living artist, Ai Weiwei, has been commissioned to fill Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. Life is never guaranteed to be safe, so we better um, use it when we are still in the good condition. First, our top story. In Prime Minister's questions yesterday, a rare moment of contrition from Gordon Brown. Uh, the um, Prime Minister told the Chilcot Inquiry and the House that defence expenditure rose uh, in real terms every year. The House of Commons Library has now produced figures that clearly show that that assertion is simply incorrect. Yes, Mr Speaker, and I am already writing to Lord uh, Sir John Chilcook about this issue. Defence spending rose from £21 billion, uh, to this year around £40 billion, from 1997 to this date. It rose every year in cash uh, terms. Uh, for a number, for a number of uh, operational and other reasons, the real terms rise in the defence budget is 12% over the last uh, 13 years. It, it's because of our expenditure on Afghanistan and our expenditure on Iraq, we have spent 17 billion more than the defence budget. But because of operational fluctuations and the way the money is spent, expenditure has risen in cash terms every year. In real terms, it is 12% higher. But I do accept, I do accept that in one or two years, defence expenditure did not rise in real terms. Nicholas Watt, our chief political correspondent, says it was a sticky moment for Brown. It was one of Gordon Brown's uh, most awkward moments uh, in Prime Minister's questions yesterday. It was one of the earliest questions he was asked by the Conservative Tony Baldry, uh, Conservative MP. Um, so were you right to say uh, that defence spending had increased in real terms every year under, the, under your government? That's what Prime Minister said to the Commons last week. And more importantly, in a way, it's what he told the Chilcot Committee uh, into the Iraq war. And the Prime Minister had to admit uh, that he was wrong, that defence spending had not increased in real terms. That is above inflation uh, every year of this government. As David Cameron pointed out uh, during the exchange at Prime Minister's questions, uh, unprecedented really for Gordon Brown to say sorry. Yes, it is. And, and, and Gordon Brown, former Chancellor, usually gets his uh, figures uh, right. Um, there's often a slate of hand, and he thought he was getting away with that here. And the slate of hand in this case is that defence spending over the whole period of this government has risen in real terms. 
and defence spending has risen every year in cash terms. But obviously what really matters are those real terms above inflation increases. And that hasn't happened every year. And as the Conservatives pointed out, that some of the years where defence spending was not increasing above the rate of inflation, well, those were years when Britain was at war. How damaging is this for Gordon Brown? I think it's not a great moment for him um, because, in a sense, he has been caught out. Normally, he gives the wrong impression, but technically he's right. This time, he gave the wrong impression and he was technically wrong. So not great for him. But it also comes at a moment where things seem to be not going particularly brilliantly um, for the Labour Party. Uh, There is obviously this damaging threat of this uh, strike by BA cabin crews being organised by the Unite Union. Charlie Whelan, his former spin doctor, who's the political director of the Unite Union, is back. The Conservatives are saying, here we are, we're back to the 1970s. And obviously there was the Guardian ICM poll this week, which had uh, the Tories up by three points and their lead over Labour now at nine points. And it was interesting that in recent weeks, um, Gordon Brown has been pretty sure-footed. Good jokes at Prime Minister's questions. Not quite so confident yesterday. Nicholas Watt. Well, now more on Gordon Brown. But first, cast your mind back 18 years. We're all right! We're all right! We're all right! That was Neil Kinnock in 1992 at the glitzy Sheffield rally, which many think lost Labour the election. Fast forward to 2010 and Gordon Brown is to follow a very different strategy. He'll hold small, intimate meetings in voters' living rooms. The hope is that his message will spread through word of mouth. Helen Pidd has the details. Well, he's decided he's going to get up close and personal with um, ordinary people across the country. He's going to basically invite himself round to people's houses, sit on their sofa, share a good old cup of tea, perhaps eat a biscuit, and answer their questions while persuading them that he ought to remain the Prime Minister. I think that's how he's hoping it's going to go. Labour's already been testing the ground for this, hasn't it? Back in November, um, they did a sort of dry run of this of this idea, and um, Labour Party HQ tasked local Labour Party activists with finding 12 community champions, as they put it. So there was one woman who was campaigning against a local sewage work expansion. There was another guy from the Sikh community. There was a local sixth former who had loads of really good GCSE results despite health problems. So basically a sort of tableau of society. There are lots of different people come along and, um, yeah, they sit around and listen to Gordon. And you, you've spoken to some of these poor unfortunates who've uh, had tea with Gordon Brown. And what have they said about it? It was a mystery to them, kind of how they got chosen. They got this phone call from their local MP's office um, saying, we need you to um, come to the local councillor's house two days in two days' time. We can't tell you who's going to be there, um, but you know, please come. Um, so they turn up not knowing anything. They said they suspected it might be Ed Balls or, or somebody like that. And then they were literally, he walked through the door and they were gobsmacked. Um, you know, he, he sat down, introduced himself and off they went. Is the hope that word of mouth will sort of spread this or will they be filmed and, um, you know, these events be sort of receive wider publicity? Well, there's no no such thing as spontaneity, I don't think, amid the Labour Party machine. I mean, they'll be inviting press along, I think, to all of these. It's a photo opportunity, isn't it? Gordon's surrounded by ordinary people. But when I spoke to one woman today um, who was a head teacher of um, um, a primary school who'd been invited along to one of these sessions, she said, oh, he's ever so nice, you know, much more human than I expected. And I said, so are you going to vote Labour then? And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, she said, she said it, it hadn't changed her mind about the Labour Party, is how she put it. Helen Pidd, and there's full coverage today 
today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. I'm Matt Wells from the politics desk at guardian.co.uk. Now, this general election that's coming up in May is being billed as the first digital election, the first kind of grassroots election. We saw it happening in America with President Obama and his grassroots campaign. So we at The Guardian are teaming up with two on-the-ground political organisations, 38 Degrees and Democracy Club. And we've got details online of how you can get involved, how you can sign up and join the campaign. That's all at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Calls are intensifying today for the resignation of the head of Ireland's Catholic Church, Cardinal Sean Brady. Back in 1975, he was there when two ten-year-olds were forced to sign vows of silence, allowing paedophile priest Father Brendan Smith to continue abusing children for another 18 years. Now Brady has apologised for his role in the cover-up, as Henry MacDonald, the Guardian's Ireland correspondent, explains. He used yesterday St Patrick's Day uh, Mass, the traditional Mass in Armagh, which is the seat of Catholic power in Ireland, to apologise for the for his involvement in an alleged cover-up of abuse of the of two children by Ireland's most notorious paedophile, Father Brendan Smith, and he offered his abject apology, but he has yet to say he will resign. He, he is still of a view that he, he should hold on. Will his apology satisfy those who have called for his resignation? No, absolutely not. And the calls for his resignation are growing. You now have the Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, who's in, who's in Washington for St. Patrick's Week, talking to Barack Obama, talking to Hillary Clinton. Martin McGuinness has said that the Cardinal should reconsider his position. You have uh, the, main, the other main nationalist party in Northern Ireland, the SDLP, uh, saying something similar, that he should reconsider his position and resign. And you also have all of the major victims' organisations, the, the, the people representing those who were abused in church-run institutions or by, by paedophile priests saying the same. So, look, this is not going to go away. And the most important thing to remember of all is this. One of the two children that signed an oath of silence in front of, of uh, Cardinal Brady way back in 1975, he took notes, he was a common law expert at the time, she is taking a civil action against the Cardinal and he will be called as a defendant in a Dublin court. Now that is going to be of major embarrassment to the Catholic Church and I personally can't see how the Cardinal can remain in his position if he's going to face a scenario where he's going to be in court, in the dock, answering questions to the legal team on behalf of a victim of clerical abuse. To me that, that position is unsustainable in the long run. Henry MacDonald My name's John Dennis, you're listening to Guardian Daily. As usual, there'll be cultural treats in the fields of music, theatre and dance, featuring performers from around the world. But the theme of this year's Edinburgh Festival is Europe's colonisation of the New World. The festival's director, Jonathan Mills, told The Guardian's Scotland correspondent, Severin Carell, about his highlights. The Darien Project, Caledonia, as I've mentioned, from Alistair Beaton and Anthony Niels from the National Theatre of Scotland. The juxtaposition of two dance companies, Grupo Corpo, who come from Belo Horizonte um, in southeastern Brazil, at the base of the Amazon Basin, the southern part of the Amazon Basin, who cannot but be 
um, evocative of the place they come from. They're very sexy, they're very sensual, they're fantastic, high-octane, highly energetic dancers. And Pina Bausch's Agua, from her Dancieta Wuppertal, which traces uh, an imaginary journey from in an equatorial um, location, from a rainforest to a coastline and back again. It's set in Brazil, we are told, but it's actually set in an imaginative territory like the Amazon and like any rainforest under distress. Lemmy Ponifazio and his group Mao, a Samoan choreographer living in New Zealand, in Auckland, New Zealand. There is every year in Edinburgh this ritual where the festivals present and boast their figures. Um, last year, other festivals, the Fringe, the Book Festival, were boasting about record sales. Your sales last year were pretty much static. Do you feel under any pressure to increase ticket sales, to boast of record sales? My primary focus is on creating a great event with great components, with great artists, with great shows. If I do that, I believe that I will have the support of the audience. It needs to be said that indeed we were much more even in our box office records between last year and the year before. But let's not forget that the, the year before was a disastrous year for the fringe and it made more up for, for, for lost time and lost territory. Our capacity to develop new audiences will absolutely be on the basis of the works we present and that's my primary focus. Jonathan Mills talking to Severin Carell and the Edinburgh Festival runs from the 13th of August to the 5th of September. More arts news now and the latest artist commissioned to fill the Turbine Hall in London's Tate Modern is Ai Weiwei. Hailed as China's greatest living artist, he's best known for his critiques of officialdom using interviews, documentaries and above all the internet. In an interview for a Guardian video, he spoke to the Guardian's Beijing correspondent Tanya Brannigan. You can see China still cannot offer any real value to the world except uh, being as a cheap labor and manufacturer and uh, its own so-called stability. Uh, besides that, I don't see any creative values and uh, creative mind thinking. So I want to set up an example you can do it, and uh, this is okay to speak out. I see there's a strong increase in danger because the state become uh, um, taking actions on those people who peacefully demonstrate their mind, their writers. Uh, all they did is to express their mind, and uh, uh, so it could uh, happen to me because um, we did the same thing, and in many cases, I did uh, much. Uh, uh, I went much further and uh, deeper. Life is never guaranteed to be safe, and uh, you know. So we better uh, use it when we are still in the good condition. Ai Weiwei talking to Tanya Brannigan, and you can see that film at guardian.co.uk/video. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. A group of writers have ascribed imaginary lives to a collection of 16th and 17th century portraits of people whose identity has been lost in the mists of time. 
Stephen Morris reports from a new exhibition at Montague House in Somerset. My name is Tanya Cooper and I'm curator of 16th century collections at the National Portrait Gallery. We've done two really remarkable things, I think, by bringing pictures out of store. But we've engaged with master's students from the University of Bristol to undertake new research on these portraits to find out, if possible, what date they are and who they might depict. And then we've also done something else which has been very exciting, which is working with seven internationally renowned writers of various different sorts, John Banville and Tracy Chevalier, Julian Fellows, Terry Pratchett, uh, Sarah Singleton, Joanna Trollope and Minette Walters. And they've all written really remarkable stories about the portraits, character sketches and imaginary lives. And so you can look into the portrait and you can read the story that they've come up with. My name is Julian Fellows. This is apparently used to be thought of as Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scotland. I was very struck by several things. One is she's clearly very affluent, but has deliberately chosen to be painted in a state of sorrow. And the other detail that uh, rather intrigued me is this brooch with the hawker being pursued by death, the figure of death, and the three pearls underneath it. And pearls uh, at that time were quite often used in paintings and things to signify tears. The Tudor period fascinates me, as it does many others. I don't think I'm in the least original in this. In this curious mixture of kind of glamour and danger, it is the first era that that recognisably comes out of the Middle Ages, comes out of some kind of long-ago time, and starts to become a recognisably modern state. But there was still this kind of medieval savagery going on behind it. This unnamed woman now has a name. Blanche Vavasor, Lady Marchmont. The portrait appears to have been commissioned to commemorate Blanche's sorrow. Dressed in widow's weeds, she wears a downcast look, as well as a distinctive brooch as witness to the tragic death of her husband, to whom she appears to have been defiantly loyal. When Marchmont wrote to the king from the tower, refusing to swear, Blanche intercepted his letter and instead delivered one forged by her own hand, agreeing to the king's terms. On receiving it, Henry gave the order for Marchmont's release, but when the husband returned to his home and discovered the intrigue, he uttered the only words of his which have descended to us. False king, false church, and now false wife, I am thrice cursed. This being reported to the king, the order for Marchmont's rearrest and execution was issued and the sentence summarily dispatched. Stephen Morris reporting, and you can view those portraits at Montague House in Somerset. The stories have been published in a book called Imagined Lives, Mystery Portraits. Guardian Daily was produced today by Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Listener.